you know, the Marxian take on, on all of this is that um, if you're granted a Garden of Eden where everything is available on the nearest tree, then you won't bother to build society. And then Marx comes along and says, well, mankind's task in the world is to morph it and to work upon it. And in that process, he says, now I'm not endorsing this, but he says, he says that what we're doing is communism is, is straight out of Hegel. That like basically we're, we're working upon the natural world that we're given and then we're transcending it by making, you know, it's a clash between human worlds and, and natural worlds. And we, the transcendence builds a better world at a next level still. And the argument seen at sort of an apocal scale is that capitalism could be transcended into communism once capitalism has actually rebuilt an artificial Garden of Eden. All right, welcome back to the Musing Mind podcast. Recently, uh, the show has been exploring how the economic design of society facilitates and spreads certain modes of consciousness and particular trajectories of human development. And today, I'm speaking with Gustav Peebles. Gustav is a professor of economic anthropology at the New School in New York City. I first came across his work while I was researching a bit on uh, Adam Smith, and Gustav wrote an essay that focused on an aspect of Smith's work that I had never heard before, uh, what Smith calls splenetic philosophy, which fundamentally challenges and, and flips and inverts the popular conception of Adam Smith. Uh, in short, Smith believed that humans in market economies conflate wealth with wisdom and waste most of their lives chasing after wealth, which is odd given that he wrote the book titled The Wealth of Nations. Um, usually in old age, people might have what Smith calls a splenetic insight, where they realize how they've wasted their lives chasing after capital accumulation and social distinction and turn their attention towards things that really matter in life. Um, but even though he kind of rails against this mistaken conflation between wealth and wisdom, Smith supports it. He calls it a false consciousness, but it's the false consciousness that produces society. Um, while we're mistakenly chasing wealth, we produce things, we create value, we enact society. And if we had a, a kind of lucid vision of wisdom early on, we just wouldn't engage in the socially productive activities that false consciousness stimulates. So says Smith. And this all ties into contemplative practice on a cultural scale, because for Smith, as Gustav points out, what converts people or what triggers the splenetic insight is when they realize and directly confront the scarcity of time the fact that we could die at any given moment, that time is uncertain in duration, but certain in its finitude, this is what for Smith inaugurates wisdom. So Gustav's essay explores this really strange and fascinating situation in Smith, 
And we also discuss some other writings of his that touch on things like UBI and how pencils are one of the best examples of communism. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and want to help support the project, you can share your favorite episode on social media or leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, both of which help bring new listeners to find the show. Uh, or you can become a patron at patreon.com slash Links for all of these things, as well as information on things we mentioned throughout the conversation, uh, can all be found on the podcast page, which is musingmind.org slash podcast, and click on Gustav Peebles. All right, here is my conversation with Gustav. All right. Pretty, you pretty sure. much just described me in a nutshell, I think. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. That's exciting. Well, in, in that case, then maybe a, a good kind of jumping off point. I, I just briefly to ask, you know, who you are and what you do, but but more importantly and more broadly, what are the interests and the questions that kind of motivate a lot of your work? What are the inquiries that that you keep returning to across time? What are those ideas in, in the kind of realm of economics or thinking that, that you keep returning to? Right. Yeah, it's a, that's a great, great question. Um, I will say that I'm not an economics professor. I'm an anthropology professor here. But I am uh, within a sub-discipline of anthropology called economic anthropology, which has been sort of making a lot of a comeback lately. It's sort of, there's a long history there from going back to the 50s and 60s that we don't need to go over tonight, today. But um, <laughs> but basically, lately, you know, there's been a sort of efflorescence of it again. And my way of, you know, sort of jumping into the topic has always been to um, take economics very seriously. I, in some, in some ways, a lot of my work I consider to be translations, um, just to help anthropologists, like, uh, you know, tra- translate economics ideas into an anthropological idiom, mm, yeah. um, and that they can then, you know, grapple with and, and contend with on their own. Um, so I always try to do a lot of historical work on economic theory and especially monetary policy. Um, so that's sort of like a one one vector of my research. That's all taken me into, I think, what we'll probably be talking about today is sort of this idea about economic traditionalism, which is a sort of forgotten term from Max Weber um, mm-hmm. that delineates the supposed idea, the, the idea that there's supposedly people who don't plan for tomorrow. Um, and capitalists plan for tomorrow, and economic traditionalists plan for today. And this sets mm-hmm. up this sort of grand battle um, that um, you know is somewhat reflected in uh, in this planetic philosophy that you and I started uh, corresponding over a while back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, so, yeah, that the paper that you wrote uh, it was called "For Love of False Consciousness: Adam Smith on the Social Origins of Scarcity." Um, that that was the first point that I I dove into your work and. I, I think it's a good place to start too to kind of introduce some of the context. So maybe give us an idea of what you wrote about in that paper, the kind of overview narrative, uh, what led you to write it, and I think it, it must have been almost ten years ago that you wrote it. So I also wonder what sticks with you from that paper as kind of the, the most interesting and salient questions. Right. Yeah, I had a lot of fun writing that paper, um, but it was a rare opportunity, you know, because it's not a standard journal article kind of paper. Um, and it was just uh, somebody I know had reached out to me and said, you know, is there anything you'd like to add to this newsletter? And I said, sure. And it's actually, it seems like it's my most downloaded paper. <laughs> um, and so that's been a lot of fun. But basically, the idea is that I was reading some text 
that don't get read that much and and they put a different light on things and uh, i think listeners to your podcast are sort of among the few who probably are aware that like book five of the wealth of nations actually makes a case for public education. And (laughs) and so there's, there's this interesting way in which Adam Smith has been hijacked, you know, by a certain ideological set of forces in, you know, the United States, Europe, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And it sort of has really dumbed down what he was trying to say. And, and so, um, and of course, book five on public education is the one that always gets trotted out. But, but if you read the theory of moral sentiments, it really problematizes a lot of what's going mm-hmm. on. And in that text, he makes the case that chasing after material goods is actually at an individual level, completely idiotic and unjustifiably mm-hmm. dumb. <laughs> you know, like you, can't, <laughs> you should not be doing it. And yet this is the conundrum that he then, you know, explodes out into a a book, you know, is, but why do we do it? Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what I just, I tried to synopsize. And then I also tried to sort of delve in a little deeper into what it might mean. But the general synopsis is, is that, you know, when, what, so why is it that people are chasing after these trinkets and he calls them trinkets and, you know, uh, baubles of frivolous use and and things like that. He's, he's very disdainful of the material, opulent, what he calls opulence and conveniences, he calls them um, instead Mm -hmm. of conveniences, but he like makes fun of people who carry around tweezer cases because they're unnecessary (laughs) and they're just, they're just gaudy. He even has this great line where he says they contrive new pockets designed to carry around the extra stuff that they don't really need. (laughs) Uh, I feel like when you said what, what's been, what have I kept from that essay one is you know that turn of phrase they contrive new pockets you know Mm. it's such a great (laughs) such a great sort of encapsulation of of his critique then so then he wonders well so why do people keep doing it and they actually waste away their entire youth um on chasing after these baubles and he makes the argument that they're doing it for to acquire social uh acclamation you know from their peers and from Mm -hmm. society and that the cheapest and easiest pathway to fame and riches is through gaudy external material display. So it's like a sort of peacock theory of, you know, of, of the world, right? And, and that he, he does, you know, propose that there's other pathways to fame outside of, you know, the chasing of material wealth. But this is the, is the most obvious and the most uh, crude and therefore the easiest, you know. So then yeah. people do it. They start chasing after the, the material wealth. And then... And then later in life, they wake up uh, and they become what he calls splenetic philosophers. That is, they see the world for what it quote unquote truly is, which is that they never should have sold their precious time in their youth to society's needs. Um, you know, and they should have always held on to it themselves. They sold their time away cheaply. They sold away their body cheaply. And then they will look back bitterly and say, why did I do that? All of this wealth is completely meaningless. Um, so it's like a very sort of Zen, you know, right. Adam, Adam Smith, um, where he says, you know, things like, does anyone imagine that the down pillow is more comfortable than the straw pillow, you know, and that it's easier <laughs> to sleep in a cottage than a palace. And, you know, qu- and he says quite the contrary has been proven to be true. And my favorite line from that text is, you know, the beggar sunning himself by the side of the highway has that security that Kings are fighting for. Right. And so then this is the the crazy part of the story is that he then says, ah, but it is good that it is so. And basically, right, it all makes, turns. yeah, he makes the argument that sort of, you know, in, in his language, you know, sort of God given 
uh, sort of ruse to convince humankind to plow through harshness and necessity and toil to create society. Um, and without it, we would all not be, we would be beastly and just sort of cast out, you know, into a world of abundance that would then deteriorate our capacity to build society. Right. Yeah, it's his his starting off point, I think, is really interesting. What what Smith takes to be one of the fundamental kind of human desires, right? He asks, and this sentence actually reminded me a lot of Henry David Thoreau, oddly enough. But Smith asks, um, for to what purpose is all the toil and bustle of this world? What is the end of avarice and ambition of the pursuit of wealth, of power and preeminence? And like you mentioned, for Smith, this this comes down to fundamentally our desire to to be both seen and and I think also to be worthy of, of being seen, right? There's this element of kind of receiving the attention of others and also somehow feeling worthy of that attention. And he goes on to kind of show or, or construct this argument that living in society, we equate this or, or the proxy we use to pursue that is social distinction. And social distinction within the context of a capitalist society or the economic society he's sketching out in wealth of nations even it gets bound up in the process of accumulating capital and gaining wealth like you said we begin we see that as the easiest way to attain the social distinction around us um and he even goes again i like this quote from from smith he writes the rich man glories in his riches because he feels they naturally draw upon him the attention of the world um, and his heart seems to swell and dilate within him, right? So for, for Smith, this is a, a literal corruption of our moral sentiments, that this this is a confusion that is morally hazardous. Um, and yet, like you say, he, he goes off to on this line, and then he says, but it's also necessary, it's good, it's the way that society maintains itself. So what's going on here in this conflation between kind of achieving social distinction and pursuing wealth fundamentally for these psychological reasons, right? What what is it about? Is it something to do with the, with the maintenance of scarcity? What does he see as kind of the operative mechanism there that that we begin to conflate these things? Right. So uh, I sometimes when I'm talking about this, give because you know a lot of this Adam Smith got from uh, Rousseau's theory of discourse on inequality, and mm-hmm. and Thoreau, uh, Rousseau has this great great example of of you know he sort of satirically lambasts us for living in houses. And he says, this much we know, that the first person who ever built a house did not need it. And mm. and that's a f- sort of fascinating argument. He's basically saying, you know, um, of course, this is all tied up with like, you know, notions of noble savage- savagery that were rampant at the time. But the argument is, is that, you know, whoever built that first house was somebody who didn't have one the day before. It wasn't a baby because babies can't build. And so let's say he was, you know, 26 years old and he decides to build a house the night before he hadn't had a house and he suddenly (laughs) built the house, you know, and he, and so this is this argument about what, why do you think you have these needs as a human, you were fine without the house, without the material goods. And you were, uh, you know, in, in Rousseau's thinking, you were a better man for it, you know. Um, and then you allowed these sort of social corruptions and notions of and desires for distinction to come into your life. But guess what the externality of that is? Well, the house got built, you know. Mm-hmm. So so when you ask me that question, I you're like, that's the answer, right? That That's what's so interesting is that society is is almost built as an externality of this, right. of this struggle you know that um that w- well it, it just it sends off these sort of things like libraries and 
televisions and, you know, <laughs> universities and, and roads and cars. And all of that is the result of humankind's desire for distinction. And so Smith thinks that that is leading us to a space of better efficiency. And so that's the one thing he doesn't really solve. You know, it's a, he doesn't mm-hmm. explain if he's disdainful of humans fighting between each other uh, through material wealth, then why the heck did he write a 600-page book called <laughs> The Wealth of Nations, where <laughs> nations were supposed to fight with each other over who had the most wealth? You right. know, and um, it is that is the true conundrum. And I, you know, I can only bring it down to this sort of my my theory is is that you know there's a lot of philosophical debate you know encapsulated by this sort of argument of like what is what are the pathways to wisdom? Well, one and you already mentioned him, Thoreau is a really great example of the pathway to wisdom is through uh, struggle. Right. Right. And so uh, it's actually the battles and the and the and the hardships that you put yourself through that are the only way you become, you know, the true self, you know. And then there's the Smith, the Smith wealth of nations argument that like efficiency is sort of what ends up granting you access to this better self, you know, constantly uh, liberating oneself from struggle is what opens up the possibility of being a true self. Um, Mm -hmm. And so there's this, you know, there's this battle and, and what Smith and Smith himself, I think was having that battle, right? Because there are lines in the theory of moral sentiments where he says, we wouldn't go to school, you know, in hardship unless it was put upon us, but hardship is what builds society and society is what builds efficiencies. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I, I really like that, that framing too, that in, in on Smith's view, society is is an externality of kind of the human psychological follies right in in our kind of misguided pursuit of of uh, so whether we're blinded by ignorance or whether you know we conflate um distinction with wealth and so on society is the externality to that and that kind of of, of creates this this sense that you pick that that you pick up on which is there's this kind of curious distinction between the self-interest of society and the self-interest of the individual. And in the framing that Smith puts up there, they're almost at odds with one another, right? That it's in the self-interest of society to have a bunch of humans running around thinking that uh, getting rich is going to make them happy and get them the social distinction that that leads to wisdom. Um, it's in its interest because the externalities are the houses that we build and the capital that we accumulate and all of these things, these industrious activities we wouldn't uh, participate in otherwise. And, and I wonder about, about this kind of framing of society and individuals having self-interests that come at the expense of, of one another, right? That, that doesn't seem like an ideal situation. <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely troublesome. Uh, and, you know, I sort of, at the end of that article, sort of just posed the question <laughs> instead of trying to solve it because <laughs> yep. it's, uh, it's, uh, it's not that easy to solve. But it does, at, at one step uh, towards thinking about it at least would be to sort of, I think, do what I did in that article where I said, you know, well, it makes sense. Like society's not even, you know, I, I called it, um, you know, the, the, for a love of false consciousness, but, but really what I suggest is that society's not even being devious. Society is actually mm-hmm. sending into our brains its own personal, if we can think of it as a, you know, a, the, this isn't me this is talking, this is, you know, Smith and Dirk right. personifying society. 
And it's basically got, you know, a sort of structure of thinking that's no different than one than the way you and I also have a, some structure of thinking. And it has this special right to instill that into us. And it's, its way of thinking is that time is not scarce, right? Society mm-hmm. does not experience time scarcely. So it never experiences the flash of insight that comes from splenetism. It's not even trying to be evil and trick us, you know, it's just, <laughs> it's just, it's just conveying the wisdom that it knows, you know? Right. And, and so to imagine a way in which society and an individual could come together here, um, you know, would somehow probably begin with imagining how society would become sympathetic to the wisdom of splenetism. Mm. And that's that's something you point to as uh, an interesting kind of divergence point between Adam Smith and Karl Marx, where right that both believed in in this kind of reign of false consciousness, right? But whereas Smith thought we had to preserve it, Marx sought to to explode it, right? He thought that we needed to get out of its grip. So where where did Marx kind of differ from this? How did he think that Smith was wrong in thinking that if we were to get out of this kind of false consciousness, society? would not actually fall apart, but move more towards Marx's vision. Right. Yes, excellent point. So I think the way I see, you know, the Marxian take on on all of this is that um, he's, he's more, you know, as he himself says, you know, he's, he's more affiliated with Hegel and Smith than, than we are typically want to acknowledge. And, mm-hmm. and that is to say, there's this sort of, so let's put Hegel in between Smith and Marx then, right? As, as is proper. And Hegel did is, is, is it's mentioned that Hegel took the invisible hand from uh, Adam Smith uh, with his mm. cunning of reason argument. But, but the point is, is that if you're granted a garden of Eden where everything is available on the nearest tree, then you won't bother to build society. Right. Um, and then, and that's the so-called natural world. And then Marx comes along and says, well, mankind's task in the world is to morph it and to work upon it, you know, and to, to build, to build things like that is what a humankind does. It cannot help itself. That, that's what it means to be human. As he calls it, it's our species being. And mm-hmm. in that process, he says, now I'm not endorsing this, but he says, <laughs> He says that what we're doing is communism is is straight out of Hegel. That like basically we're we're working upon the natural world that we're given, and then we're transcending it by making you know it's a clash between human worlds and, and natural worlds, and we the transcendence builds a better world at a next level still. And mm-hmm. the argument seen at sort of an apocal scale is that capitalism could be transcended into communism once capitalism has actually rebuilt an artificial garden of Eden, Mm. a sort of place of such abundance, right? And this is why you get the focus from Marx on abundance, right? He's like, what are these crises of overproduction? Well, you know, they're, they're actually the pathways to utopia, right? And I, Mm -hmm. I always say to, you know, people, I say, you know, the thing about communism is that we were sort of clouded by the Soviet uh, system for a hundred years about you know that it was somehow like state ownership of the economy and, and all property, whereas Marx might well say, if in my reading, that the best example of a communist good is actually a pencil. Mm. What do I mean by that? Well, pencils have become so abundant that very few people, at least in the United States, pay attention to their price. And right. if, if you ask 
you know, if, if, if you ask somebody, well, do you know where you even got that pencil? They actually just sort of land in people's backpacks and right. no, no one quite knows the last time they bought a pencil because they sort of just get passed around. And, it, and, and my favorite sort of testimony to this is, is the social mores around pencils is that if you're in a classroom, as I often am, um, you know, and a student turns to another student and says, you know, hey, man, you know, I, I don't have anything to write with today. Can I borrow a pencil? Uh, it is, there's two things that are interesting about that interaction. One is it's antisocial to not give it to the person if, mm-hmm. you, if you do have an extra one, right? You, you, it would be weird to not hand it off. Right. Um, and then at the end of the class period, if the person forgets to give it back, it's antisocial to ask for it back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so to <laughs> me, that's like what Marx was saying. Marx was saying there's these inherent crises of overproduction that build a gar- an artificial garden of Eden instead of a natural garden of Eden. And when everything will be plucked from the nearest tree and, and that sort of, that's when the false consciousness will also be exploded. It's a little complicated, you know, more complicated than, than what I'm saying, because you're right. Like he, you know, what's the exact pathway to that and, and how would we wake up? You know, he started in the communist manifesto says we'll wake up before that happens and steer our way to it. Um, so I don't want to, you know, gloss over all those important moments in the history of world <laughs> philosophy or something. But but there, that's sort of where I I come at it from. The equilibrium price drops to zero of everything. Right, and it, it's interesting because I think you can actually look at uh, John Maynard Keynes as a, a kind of interesting compromise between Smith and Marx. I've been. I've been going back uh, very often kind of in my circles, people will share the essay that Keynes wrote called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, right? Mm, which is yes. short, pithy, really provocative, um, and all these kinds of things. But what I discovered is is after reading that, if you go back, and I didn't discover this, I'm building off the work of uh, Robert Chernomas here, who, who wrote a whole couple of series of articles on it. If you go back and read Keynes's you know, magnum opus, the, the general theory, the whole thing starts to read as a kind of tract leading to the post-scarcity society he really took, uh, spoke about in the shorter essay. Um, but, but the way Keynes thought about it, he agreed with Smith, I think, that an objectionable capitalism, which is Keynes's language, is the, is the best way to reach, and now this is where he departs from, from Smith, to reach a post-scarcity society. And for Keynes, the way he he defined that is that over time, we'd have uh, all this capital accumulation and we'd, we'd benefit from compound interest and new technologies and so on to the point where we drop the marginal value of capital down to zero. So that over time, like you're saying, we create this abundance of capital goods so that the motivation, for example, to pursue capital goods is going to decrease as their abundance increases. This is like the, if you shorten his theory down to a couple sentences. But I, I really liked how he he seems to me to bring together Smith's idea that an objectionable capitalism is necessary to produce an abundance of capital goods, that, oh. that we have not found a better way to do that. But he seems to disagree with Smith that maintaining that society is necessary, that all of his policies, and I don't, you know, I don't know how kind of into the public consciousness his post-scarcity thing was, but he was really the the prevailing economist of the 20th century, and, and so much of the policy from you know 1940s through until until the early 70s was really derivative of his work. Um, and so it's it's really interesting. Do you see? Does he function at all as kind of a bridge between the, these two ways of thinking? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great point, um, and I think there's all sorts of ways to think about. You know, he. Uh, he 
he has that in a general theory he has this great uh, little divergence or whatever you want to call it. It's called, it's not called an addendum. I can't remember what he calls it, but he's, he's grappling with a, a monetary theorist who was sort of gaining steam at the time amongst left-wing thinkers and right-wing thinkers sort of on the extremes of both named Gassel, who was a, mm. um, a, a monetary thinker from Argentina um, uh, down there in the 1900s or so. And he talks about, Gassel talks about how money is the only product for sale on the market that doesn't age, doesn't experience decay the way mm. everything else on the market experiences decay. So again, we're seeing this natural artificial split, right? Um, oh, somehow they've built this thing called money that's so artificial that it doesn't decay like against the laws of nature, you know? And he right. says that this gives money this unfair advantage uh, in the world of exchange because the banana salesman, can go to the market and uh, the person, the, the money purchaser can say, look at the bananas and say, yeah, they look pretty good, but how about you come back tomorrow? And the price will go down uh, mm. for the bananas, but it won't go down for the money. And so, it, so Gisela gets very upset about this. Kane and builds a whole theory. Uh, you've probably heard about, you know, the local currency movements worldwide right. and the sort of, that was called demirage, the yes. sort of forced inflationary stamps that were put on Gisellian money. And what Cain says uh, that's so great, he says, well, you know, it's all, that's all quite interesting. And, and actually, Skidelsky makes the claim that Keynes was widely influenced by this argument, but to, to think of through his liquidity preference stuff. But, but what he says is he says, well, you're forgetting how humankind will just find some other device for hoarding. Uh, uh, so, so this is, this is also gets back to what you asked, you know, it's a, the nature of humankind right now to in a world of scarcity to be worried about you know its control over the world of goods and so it it will just create diamonds uh, or you know whatever else if 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 the state takes away if the state forces inflation into its monetary system humans will find new ways to store value for tomorrow that decays less and mm. so that that's just the state abdicating its control over money to outside forces is sort of what he says and i guess that's an you know, all a long way of saying that, again, if he could picture a world in which the, in a post-scarcity system, no one would be bothering with this silliness, <laughs> but also this very structural, there's this very structuralist logic to it, which was, you know, also some uh, literature that he was familiar with at the time through, you know, the, all the Russian linguists and what have you that were, were wandering around his circles and, uh, <laughs> and that, that there's this interesting way in which you say, okay, let's, so let's make cars abundant. You know, uh, do, you know, do we really think, uh, that in a world where cars are completely abundant, anyone can wake up in the morning and grab a car. Will will humankind really stop fighting over cars or will they figure out a way to invent a Ferrari? Mm. Uh, so that it's constantly see. And that, to me, that's the sort of battle, like, you know, where it's like, where's the hope in that, you know, is, is right. you know, hopelessly mired in Smith's argument or could we imagine a scenario, uh, you know, that Keynes points out, as you pointed out, you know, that we could get to a space where no one wants to bother building a Ferrari just to distinguish mm -hmm. themselves. Yeah. There's, uh, there's a couple directions that I'd love to go there. One, one is, uh, I was just reading a book by uh, Peter Fraze called four futures cool. and he wrote that recently. And, he, he sets up kind of a, a diagram with two axes, X and Y, between um, scarcity and abundance and equality and hierarchies. And so he explores each quadrant as a possible future. 
And in the, in the bit where he's exploring what equality and abundance would mean, he takes on this question of sometimes there's this implicit assumption that if we achieve post-scarcity, if we achieve abundance for all capital goods, that somehow conflict would decrease, right? Or, or somehow all of, the, all of the shit that makes us human, all of these interactions and, and so on would, would kind of evolve for the better. But there, there's the psychology remains the same, right? And this is something that Keynes pointed out too in his um, economic possibilities bit, is he he says, um, I forget the exact word, but he said something like he looked ahead with apprehension or even despair because for however long you know we want to frame human history, we have evolved around this question, this this project of what he calls the economic problem, right? Of, of securing these these material goods necessary for survival and participation in society. And if we all of a sudden transcend that, right, we're we're going to transcend our traditional problem, but we've still been wired and and kind of set in this way to to be oriented to it. And so it it it's not necessary to assume that uh, conflict is somehow going to decrease. So all you're doing is getting rid of, of kind of capital as that ordering hierarchy of, of social distinctions and conflict. And, and in a sense, you're trading away that devil you know for a, a hypo, for a devil you don't, right? We don't know what's going to emerge in that space as kind of what conflict uh, evolves around, right? I, I can imagine uh, a Black Mirror episode where everyone has abundant capital goods and, and the kind of ordering force in society is some kind of social media like count, right? Where we still have all the same kind of conflicts with one another and so on. So I'm, I'm always interested in when people look ahead at, at potential post-scarcity, not taking for granted that that's going to bring along kind of um, improvements in, in human psychology and behavior, but how are the conflicts going to be projected into that space? Right. That's a, yes, I, I'm concerned about that too. And I think it brings <laughs> us back to what, what, you know, the reason we're talking is false consciousness, right? And, right. you know, to what extent is that so-called wired in our brain or is mm-hmm. it, you know, s- social territory that's been conquered in our brains? And if society transcends the concern uh, with material production, then maybe we won't be concerned with material production. And that's why I think, the sort of study, as I you know mentioned at the very beginning, the study of economic traditionalism is so fascinating in this regard. Because, uh, and I can recommend a book to your listeners called that is doesn't circulate nearly as much as it should. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was published on some academic press that now makes it you know a hundred dollars to buy. Right. But I'll I should probably just ask the authors if I can post a PDF or something because <laughs> it's now twenty years old. But it's called Lilies of the Field. Lilies of the field. Lilies of the field. And that's taken, of course, from the Sermon on the Mount, you know, because what does Jesus say on the Sermon on the Mount? He says something insanely radical, but also exceedingly economic traditionalist. He says, you know, consider the lilies of the field. They toil not, right? And and that they blossom and grow and spread just like anything else without lifting a finger. And the text that they are then writing, these three authors, they're called Stuart, uh, Day, and Papataxiarchies. I I always feel like everyone's going to assume I'm friends with them. I actually don't even know them. (laughs) But I recommend their book so much that, you know, I start wondering if I'm like a shill for them or something. (laughs) But but it's a great study uh, of, you know, it's an edited volume of like, uh, it's the subtitle is Marginal People Who Live for the Moment. Mm. And um, it's a sort of deep study of, what it means for marginalized peoples and societies, and we find them all over the place, who are, you know, could be sort of, you know, under the heading, for example, of like vagrancy laws or, 
you know, um, the minority groups that are traditionally wandering groups, you know, um, there's all sorts of migrant laborers that fall into this, you know, sort of classic sort of outsidership that they then say is, is always designated, always denoted or, uh, you know, labeled as people who are only worried about today and not about tomorrow. And so mm-hmm. there's this whole sort of eradication scheme that then builds up in many societies to force these people to start thinking about tomorrow. Um, and so my favorite example of this is the French term for real estate is immobilier, right? Immobilized. Mm-hmm. And, and what it does is, you know, the idea is that, well, you, you need a mortgage and it, it's going to, you're going to get a home and, and then you're going to be stuck there, you know, but it's going to, it's going to push you into a system where you have to think about tomorrow. Um, mm. And, and, uh, you know, Kant has some great turn of phrase also where he says this, you know, it's all related to vagrancy and, and, and civility, like whether you think about tomorrow and you have a home or not, and whether you're a wandering person or whether you have a home. And I think that there are these examples of people, um, as Stuart Day and Papa Toxiarchies point out, that they, they live for the moment, they don't worry about tomorrow, they see the world as constituted by abundance. Mm. And they don't get super tied up. I mean, one of the reasons they're outside of the system is because they're not worried about chasing after the baubles that we ask them to chase after. And they sort of look upon those with disdain. And so I think there's, you know, sort of potential spaces to at least think through these questions by looking at the economic traditionalists that we know exist today, or at least are labeled as such. Hmm. Yeah, I'm excited to get that book now. Um, I think this is a good space too to bring in some of the writing you did uh, in another essay, A Laborless Eden, where you, you, you point out to this idea, you begin that there's always been some kind of utopian fantasy that serves as the engine um, for scientific progress, and also, I think, kind of that emergent economic idea of, of industrial capitalism. Um, this, I, the idea we've been talking about that one day you know, we'll have enough capital and, and be delivered from the world of work. Our lives will gradually shift from being organized around compulsory labor in service of material needs towards more lives of leisure and play and, and exploratory behavior. Um, and I think I really like the way that Andre Gore's kind of gave the eulogy for this utopia. Um, he, and I, I was just reading his book recently, a uh, critique of economic reason. Um, it was funny that you mentioned Kant, uh, there's a parallel there, mm, yeah. but, um, he, he said that there's nothing left of this industrial utopia, that it has collapsed and we are now carrying on as kind of prisoners beneath its, its rubble, right? That we're imprisoned there. And, you know, if we, if we lost the idea that we're heading towards this laborless Eden and are now just kind of aimlessly working in a space without a utopian future that grounds uh, socioeconomic evolution, we're just kind of aimlessly accumulating capital with no utopia to make sense of it, right? But I, I really like this idea of looking at how utopias have made sense of the trajectory of kind of where we're going and how we're getting there. Um, and, and I wonder how you feel about... May, some people would like to pin this maybe on the transition from Keynesian economics to what followed. Maybe we'll call it neoliberalism, right? The, the economic framework that rose up in the 70s. Uh-huh. Um, but I'm really interested in the relationship between that framework switch and how we thought about the future changed. Because it, it really seems following that time period in the 80s, the 90s, um, and then the early 2000s, you had people like Mark Fisher, 
um, talking about capitalist realism and our growing inability to be able to imagine alternatives. Uh, you had Francis Fukuyama talking about how we reached the end of history, right? So I, I, I'm really interested in, in how our relationship to thinking about the future and kind of that, that erosion of utopias kind of characterized the psychology that came out of it. Right. Yes. <laughs> You've gotten, uh, you're, you, we keep touching upon, you know, very distinct harmonies between our interests. Um, I think arguably one of the reasons I ended up, you know, uh, studying so much uh, about Sweden was because in the 70s, it was often touted as a sort of socialist utopia that they had solved all sorts of all sorts of things uh, that no one else was solving. And they even mm-hmm. had, you know, a sort of third way argument and they were espousing it in uh, the non-aligned world, uh, you know, that was outside of the Cold War uh, spaces. And, you know, um, so, so, I, so I, I definitely agree. And, and I think Sweden sort of fell hard on, on the post-utopia. <laughs> and, you know, because they even, they lived this supposed utopia and were told that they were at the heights of, you know, human society with it. And, and then they entered into much of the capitalist realism that you're describing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, where you're right that that a lot of the imagination has sort of almost become, you know, cynic. This isn't a, a verb, but cynicized. You know, like <laughs> no one, no one wants to. Everyone poo-poo's it. You know, and and um, and yeah. it's one of the reasons we have so much trouble, like imagining, you know, how to think about climate change and, uh, you know, uh, or economic equality. And so the question, I guess, is, you know, w- what triggered that sort of collapse? I don't quite have, uh, you know, a, an answer. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Right, to of say. course. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, maybe it'd be a little scary if I did. Um, yeah. But, um, but maybe we should think through it. Um, well, know. yeah, and and it's something that I thought the the essay you wrote kind of pointed to. I, I I would like to think. I don't know if this is just my filter bubble, but I would like to think that at least since the financial collapse in 2008 that there's been a kind of resurgent interest in these kind of pragmatic utopias, right? Thinking about pragmatic means towards fundamentally different uh, kind of socioeconomic organizations. Um, There's a lot of talk now about, you know, post-capitalism, what does that mean? Uh, The highest level of British government was actually talking about the phrase fully automated luxury communism. Um, (laughs) You know, universal basic income is all over. It's a very big conversation. And one of the ways that that you framed kind of something that has changed in, in how we're imagining these futures is socialism used to kind of operate orbiting around the idea of production. Uh-huh. Um, and, and, and you said that something has changed where the kind of new, so- new socialist mentality is much more about distribution. So I wanted to ask what, what you meant about that, what that shift uh, is. Right. So I should clarify that that text is a bouncing off of, uh, it's, it sort of starts out as a book review, um, but the, the publication that asked for me to write it said that it was more essayistic and supposed to just bounce off of text. So, um, you know, it sort of deviates mm-hmm. from a standard book review, but it is, the, it's a book by James Ferguson called Give a Man a Fish. Which is such a great, you know, sort of title for this UBI argument, right? That, um, right. you know, no, no, there's not going to be a world of work where you should bother to teach somebody to fish. You should just give the man the fish, you know, <laughs> like, and be done with it. And one of the great things that Ferguson says in that text is, uh, you know, he says, look at the world of worklessness in South Africa today. You know, he said, even if you could imagine every economist who studies it says, you know, even if you could imagine something completely outlandish, like 16% growth, you still wouldn't get to full employment. Mm 
you know, and so it's this sort of, he, he calls it sort of more like, uh, you know, whereas anthropology used to study Africa scandalously, I'm again, not endorsing this, mm-hmm. but used to study Africa because they thought it was a window on the past. He actually suggests that South Africa is a window on the future mm. um, of like what the world of worklessness might look like and why UBI could be uh, essential. And so, so certainly if production is just an ethical sort of idea and it's often about creating as i said in that essay you know sort of it's 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 funny it's bringing us back to this myth like it's it's a seeking after self-sovereignty that Mm. is like a sort of utopian myth in and of itself right this idea Mm -hmm. that you should somehow achieve a space where you don't have to rely on anyone else and this is you know root and branch like american libertarianism loves this kind of stuff right that Mm -hmm. there's this imagined world where you're going to get to, uh, you know, not have to be a burden on anyone and then no one gets to be a burden on you. And so, of course, the, you know, the, actually the New Yorker had a great cartoon about this, you know, where these parents showed up uh, at somebody at their kid's door with their suitcases and, and the door, the son answers the door and, he sa- and the dad says, yeah, we changed our mind. We do want to be a burden on you. and and that ideology of parents not wanting to be a burden on their children in old age is you know foreign to a lot of humans history you know Mm -hmm. but it is very much part and parcel of a sort of capitalists you know uh vision of achieving self-sovereignty what's what's in your bank account can you make it through tomorrow without and the vagrancy laws of the 19th century in many jurisdictions were all about it, the they were catch all phrases uh, you know j- legislation to sort of criminalize poverty but the way that they decided if there was a crime was to see if you had money enough for tomorrow hmm. that was that was basically what it was you know they they just said we, he was found upon the streets without money for tomorrow so we arrested him and that's all about this notion of self sovereignty and and I guess without sounding too hokey I would say you know uh, that one of the sort of post-capitalist utopian sort of spaces would be, and this is what anthropology sort of secretly has like been, you know, trending toward for so long is to pay attention to those bonds that are the warp and woof of society that, you know, capitalist, uh, you know, modernity for lack of a better term has sort of asked us to walk away from. So the, you know, the classic example is that, you know, kin, there's a, there is an inverse correlation between the size of kin groups and the, you know, incursion of capitalism into village life. So, you know, the, so what do we do? Uh, we, you know, we use money to place our grandparents in, uh, nursing homes and, um, and that's considered normal and totally fine. And other societies, uh, you know, they, they, they find that scandalous. And of course the grandmother moves in with them. Right. And it's this, it's this way in which the kin group is openly and transparently in favor of, you know, a strong network and bonds and burdens and, and uh, you know, and this, this sort of vision of self-sovereignty is, is a, itself a myth that I think the politics of production sort of is uh, undergirds that whole myth. Yeah, it's I, I love this this uh, focus on kind of dependence and interdependence. Um, it comes up a lot in kind of the contemplative uh, discourse, where you know one, one of the ways you might contextualize what's happening in in meditation is you're trying 
you're kind of moving from this individualism of I am an independent self, right, to this trying to find an actual experiential relationship to to interdependence, right? And there's you know, Thich Nhat Hanh writes all about this, and and a lot of the Buddhist literature is about is about drawing a, a connection between the experiential insights in meditation and what interdependence means at an embodied level. But but what's going on here that I think is such a cool parallel is we're starting to move into a theoretical level of interdependence where what does it mean if we begin to to think about ourselves not as you know a bunch of atomized self-sovereign individuals whose purpose is to get to a place where we don't depend on one another but what would it mean if fundamentally there is no society that is not co-arising we are all codependent right it's this big kind of effort of, of collective production and one of one of the ways that you kind of tied this into talking about basic income which I thought was really interesting was kind of shifting the frame from viewing a basic income payout uh, payment as a payout to somebody as, as, as a transfer of, of here's a payment, because this kind of invokes the idea of, well, what are they giving in return, right? To, to the idea of a share, um, which is very much in line with the idea of thinking about basic income as a social dividend rather than a payment. Um, so, Tell me what's going on here and kind of shifting between basic income as a payment to a social dividend or a share, kind of the, the different psychologies those invoke. Right. So that is, uh, once again, taken from an old anthropological tradition that it was like hadn't really realized was overlapping with, you know, a, a word from, you know, that couldn't be more capitalistic, the share. Um, right. And the the idea is when hunter gatherer tribes that's where it's the, the taken from you know they would uh, one person maybe was out on a hunt and would get a big catch but it was it was a given that you know because of the sort of cycles and of interdependency within that community that there was shares handed out you know uh, when it came back to the camp and it wasn't something that anyone was bitter about oh you're, you're you know you're parasiting off of me and taking my <laughs> my meat it was it was well i got lucky today and got some game and tomorrow you're going to get lucky and get some game and and so changing people's you know attitude about about whether they're getting something and they have to give something in return you know is is going to be a is going to be a tough sell i think but <laughs> but in some ways you're getting to you know the popularity of bernie sanders you know, right. um, you're, you know, he basically would, I think, be much in alignment with what you just, uh, you know, encapsulated and said about, you know, well, there's this, this vision of, of a world in which we acknowledge our, our inherent indebtedness to one another. Um, and then instead of pretending like we're somehow self-sovereign, like let's build a system that acknowledges those indebts, those debts to each other. Um, mm -hmm. And what would that, what would that look like? I think is the sort of principle of the social dividend. Yeah, I mean this this ties back into you know the question you asked at the end of the Adam Smith essay that we explored a little bit, which is, you know, what what might a splenetic society actually look like? Like, what are the kind of socioeconomic institutions that might kind of operate in this weird transition phase if our project is to move in that direction? And on one hand, as you mentioned, it's kind of it, it's an insane proposition to to propose that we can actually give any answer to that, you know, that any yeah. single person can say, this is what we need to do to move towards splenetic society. Mm -hmm. um, and on one hand, I think that's what's made a lot of the kind of post-capitalist dis discussion interesting is 
as it's been amplified by the internet, you have this kind of decentralized cognition where you have all of these different pockets coming together and being connected and, and collaborative efforts, not only to, to explore the theories of alternatives, but all kinds of alternative communities and ways of organizing resources and things like this. Um, it, it's a really interesting time, I think, to watch kind of how the new networked collaborations are going to give rise to maybe new, uh, new answers to that question, new shapes. But I wanted to ask you while I have you here about at least one kind of particular framework that it, that is broad in general, but it seems it seems interesting to me, and it's in line with um, how you mentioned kind of the platform of, of Bernie Sanders or kind of the the sentiment that a lot of people resonate behind uh, you know what he's putting out there. Um, and this draws a lot on the work of uh, Thomas Piketty and Gabriel uh, Zuckman and Emmanuel Says, who have been talking about a kind of broad spectrum. Uh, progressive taxation, right? So much higher taxes on capital across the board, um, which is something we did in the 20th century, right? This was going on during Keynes's time, uh-huh. um, and it worked very well. And and the idea is you you funnel revenues kind of back into as public goods. So universal healthcare. Um, some proposals are are looking at a form of a social dividend in one way or another, whether or uh-huh. not that's pegged to you know some some level like a poverty level, or if it fluctuates as capital flows fluctuate, and also kind of establishing more flexible ideas of, of property ownership. But, but I wonder if if this route at all of kind of using progressive taxation as a way to redirect capital flow into public goods, if, if this kind of seems in line with with motion in that kind of splenetic direction to you at all. That's a great point. I, I actually think it does. And I think one example of, you know, sort of if you were trying to win a rhetorical debate with, you know, the forces that would be opposed to this, you know, at this, you'd be like the idea of a, of a dividend without uh, return, you know, think of all the things. And I think, you know, obviously people like Bernie do point this out, you know, think of all the things that, um, you know, the wealthy receive without giving in return. <laughs> and, mm. you know, as a New Yorker, uh, one of my favorite examples is parking. Um, you know, parking is this, first of all, it's, it's a privilege because you have to first, you have to own a car, which is already an expensive thing to do in this town. And, yeah. and, uh, and then the, and then the, and then who's giving you the parking space on the street? Well, it costs you $0 to park on the streets. And we had a forum here at the new school on congestion pricing. And it was, people showed up in force. Mm. They were scandalized by the idea that the public could actually charge you know, for people to use this public good known as the streets that they should get without giving in return, you know? Mm. And, um, and, and so it, you know, parking spaces are a good example of, well, Hey, every day you, you get this dividend from society that makes your life easier. It's called a parking space, you know? <laughs> and like, you get to put your own, I always point out to people like, you don't get to put anything else out on the street and assume no one's allowed to touch it. You know, like, right. you, don't, you don't get to like leave. That's called litter. You know, anything else you leave on the street you're, is fair game for someone to grab. But for some reason, you're allowed to just dunk your car down on the street and no one's allowed to touch it. Um, so that's an example. But the but that, that brings us to the sort of general idea of public goods, which is yeah. where you were going. And I, and I think that that is a really promising space. And, and, and you also brought up, you know, different concepts of you, of property rights. And public goods sort of do operate on this different legal you know, baseline called usufruct, you know, uh, you know, the use of the fruits, which mm-hmm. is an entirely different sort of property mechanism than what we have become so accustomed to, uh, at least in America with the no trespassing signs everywhere. You know, it's this idea of absolute 
uh, you know, self-sovereign property. This is my land. I get to do whatever I want on it. And usufruct sort of says, well, it's your land, you know, but there's also other people who are involved. And it sort of acknowledges usufruct rights are really beautiful and interesting ways that acknowledge that private property can't be fully private, right? And of course, Eleanor mm-hmm. Ostrom, the Nobel Prize winning economist, is the one who studied this so well and has documented such amazing case studies across the world of like managed public goods um, where, you know, if they, they, they can be treated not quite so much as like an abundance, but they can be duly managed to be fair, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you could picture uh, a system that overproduces uh, a public good such that more and more people can get it. You know, you see this, there was, you know, remember the population boom literature uh, or doom literature from the 70s and early mm. 80s was all about how we were going to run into food scarcity. And of course, we didn't run into food scarcity uh, but what's interesting about what they were saying was they were saying, look at the overproduction in food. This is purely a distribution problem. Mm. You know, it, we could we throw away enough food every day to feed everyone if we could just figure out the distribution. And right. this, you know, sort of fascinatingly <laughs> twisted way in which private property makes it so that, you know, when Dunkin' Donuts is done for the day, it throws everything in the garbage instead of giving it to society. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the, this is what the freegan movement like sort of plays upon, you know, they say, Oh, that's an abundance right there. I see the abundance. There's no reason to pay, you know? Right. Um, and, and what is it about like defending the notion of private property, um, that makes it not rational for Dunkin' Donuts to give those away. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's a way to sort of think through that space, another, yeah, I mean, that, that's one way in which, you know, self-society dichotomy um, on this front, you know, could could be, uh, you know, harmonized. Uh, what it, how, would, how would Duncan price its donuts <laughs> on, on an hourly basis so that they're gradually trending towards zero, you know? Or, mm. But fascinatingly, I mean, if, if you have the, uh, the time, I'll tell you something else that, I, yeah. that I'm working on, which is, you know, that I find really interesting is interest rates. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the history of interest rates is not very popular to study, <laughs> tell you. Um, but what's fascinating is the battles over the rationale and legitimacy and reason behind an interest rate. And you find this, if you, if you do the research, it's really interesting. There's a, there's a longstanding, and when I say longstanding, I mean 200 year at least, no, more like two or 300 year that I can document. Uh, trend that sees the progress of society directly correlated with the interest rate. So in other words, if we're talking, right. we're talking about the 19th century when they said there was a civilized world, a barbaric world and a savage world, um, the savage world would have a high interest rate and the civilized world would have a low interest rate. And I can give you the quotes, you know, uh, <laughs> after the podcast is done, you know, where people famous, you know, historians of interest rate or philosophers of interest have said, you know, that there, that you will find in a civilized society, there's a direct correlation between a lower interest rate and the increase in civil- civilization, wow. which is a scandalous and weird thing to say. Uh, and it, but it's based on this simple premise, right? Which is that civilization can plan for tomorrow, supposedly on a, at a better more reliable way than a so-called savage society can. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's fine. Um, the, the outside world chimes in. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so yeah, so that was, you know, there, there's a way in which the pricing, you know, interest rates are great, you know, as, as the, um, you know, the, the scholastic, uh, you know, church fathers insisted was the pricing of time. And that's why it was offensive. Mm. And it was a public, they said time is a public good. It's in the commons, you know, it shouldn't be sold, bought and sold. Um, but if you think of it as the buying and selling of time and the text that I wrote, you know, that we started talking about was all about that sort of question of the buying and selling of time mm. at the individual rate versus the social rate. And the interest rate is an interesting space in which that gets, you know, sort of navigated on a day-to-day basis. You could picture, and this is where I would get Keynesian and say that it's just a picture and it wouldn't work in reality. But if a group of splenetic philosophers got together and built a bank, they could, they could offer an interest rate that would convince the youth to price their time correctly. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> that, that's fascinating. And, and it's so true. I think interest rates are a very interesting example to kind of demonstrate <clears throat> that a lot of these, these things that might be popularly viewed as very dry, kind of dismal science economic stuff are very, very intimately linked to kind of the most intimate structures of our lives that kind of shape you know what's going on um when you were when you were talking about gazelle earlier it reminded me of uh i just i I finished a book recently by a guy named charles eisenstein um who is sacred economics and he of the three kind of policy proposals he really wanted to explore in that book one of them was building off gazelle it was you know exploring negative interest rates which Uh is trying to apply this idea of of what if money decayed just like apples right and Uh and that idea alone if you look at the way structurally all the incentives get reorganized and the way behaviors are going to reshuffle around them it's 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 so uh interesting and illuminating to see how these little kind of policy shifts can lead to these really fundamental changes in the way society organizes itself. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and even to, to bring Smith a little bit back into this when we were talking about progressive taxes and public goods, there's a, there's a bit that I, I found this morning from the Theory of Moral Sentiments that I think is really important to kind of bring uh, more nuance to our understanding of Adam Smith. Like you were saying, he's kind of been hijacked into particular ideological uh, holes that he might not actually fit in anymore. Um, and one way to point that out is, is this quote where he says, the rich divide with the poor the, produ- the produce of all their improvements. They are led by an invisible hand to make nearly the same distribution of the necessaries of life, which would have been made had the earth been divided into equal portions among all its inhabitants, which is uh, a very kind of Rawlsian kind of veil of ignorance egalitarian <laughs> position, right? Where he's essentially, he's side, and, and Rawls has often been used as some of the political philosophical justification for progressive taxation in the first place. Mm. Um, so I, I, maybe to, to kind of close off the Adam Smith, I wonder, Having having read him so closely, what would you point out as kind of the popular ideas of Adam Smith today that need to be updated? If if Smith were to kind of come back all of a sudden, look at society, what would he look at and think, uh, you know, no, no, that's no good? <laughs> right. Um, that's a fun question. So I think, uh, you know, what, what has sort of always, you know, raised my hackles is that you know, Newt Gingrich is supposedly an Adam Smith professor, you know, before he goes to Congress <laughs> in the 90s. And, I'm, and I, I always find it shocking, to, you know, that he is supposedly a Smith expert, um, but can completely ignore, as I mentioned at the beginning, book five of The Wealth of Nations. Um, you know, and I think Smith, 
if he were to plop down today, would you know, it's 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 always worth remembering that he was against the giant cartels of his time. I mean, the reason he was writing was because there were too many chartered companies that had too many special privileges. And he even has a section in the Wealth of Nations where he, you know, defends the American colonies because they don't have voting in the parliament and they should just be allowed to vote in the parliament. And that, you know, so he was, he was very much a radical. Um, and, you know, I, I think he might easily fall within a sort of left wing stance um, mm-hmm. if he were plopped down today. Now, of course, he's pro market. You know, he, um, there, I don't want to pretend otherwise, but, right. but, but he, but book five shows that he acknowledges what are called today in the literature market failures and they need to be solved, you know, and, and he says it's basically an obvious point that the certain types of labor that capitalism demands, and we don't see it as much in the United States anymore, but, you know, it moved to Bangladesh or something and right. it's still happening there that are sort of, he calls them inherently stultifying. You know, that um, and the only way to sort of counteract that sort of stultification is through public education. Mm. And so he is in favor of tackling, you know, market failures instead of just saying, let's have the market solve everything. Right. right? And that is the big I think that's the big takeaway is that, you know, most Smithians today are facile Smithians who have only read, you know, the snippets that they got in their Econ 101 or something. And right. they think they think that, you know, it's the, the system to truck barter and trade and it just needs to be unshackled and allowed to, you know, exist. And, and in reality, he's a big proponent of governmental intervention in market failures. Um, and and he was and he was toppling an entire, you know, oligarchic system, basically, that um that he thought was offensive because it treated some people more fair, you know, some people uh, better than others. Mm-hmm. Use the state, you know. That's what he was sort of pointing out the hypocrisy. It's like they're they, you know, they're using the state to protect their position. Right. Yeah, I think I think one of my uh, my favorite takeaways from from reading um, your essay a number of times is I'm going to start thinking of Adam Smith as this kind of unorthodox Zen priest. <laughs> Where, um, yeah, <laughs> so, so you'll have to bear with me for a second. <laughs> but, um, you know, this, this idea that you point to that, that time is the one scarce resource. And this is something Smith w- was all about. He thought that time was essentially what brought on the, the splenetic realization in our old age. Um, and, you know, the old Zen saying is, uh, death is certain, it's time uncertain. So what should I do? Or uh, another one goes something like, you know, wake up, life is transient, uh, be aware of birth and death and don't waste time, right? So there, there's this shared emphasis on time as being a kind of jolt to to make you relate to life in a very particular way that holds the scarcity of time in mind. Um, and your, your point that society doesn't hold this view because society operates on this kind of trans-individual level where society is not going to die in 100 years necessarily, Um you know, it carries on with, with a, a perception of time as abundant. One of the, the passage that you wrote, I thought was really helpful in kind of making this process clear. So I wanted to share it. Um, you wrote, because society itself views time as an abundant resource, most of the individuals who constitute it do as well, for they are imbued with the social values that emanate from society's own needs and constraints. Pricing time at near zero <clears throat> guarantees that individuals will misprice the true cost of acquiring distinction. Um, and and I, I just love this idea, both from a contemplative standpoint, but also from a theoretical standpoint of holding the scarcity of time close at heart, 
Um, and I, and when I think about, you know, my own life and I think about my own motivations for exploring different socioeconomic possibilities, it's very much because making it ever more possible. I, I don't know how to phrase this, but kind of gesturing towards holding that scarcity of time at heart earlier and earlier on, becoming aware of it, not in a doom and gloom sense, but kind of orienting our lives around it, I think is a really provocative sentiment. So I, if anything from this podcast, I hope you take away that you have led to one human being thinking of Adam Smith as a Zen priest. And I thank you for that. <laughs> Okay. That does seem like a unique accomplishment on. <laughs> um, thank you for letting me know. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Um, d- does, does anything else kind of hang on, hang on the air for you that you want to, that you want to put out there, or bring up? Well, only, um, only to respond to what you just said, you know, uh, and I, it, it rings true to me and, uh, and very helpful, but I also just, I can't, I can't help myself from always thinking of the flip side, which would be yeah. a sort of, more, you know, in line with like mystical religious traditions, uh, you know, which is funny because you mentioned, of course, then. So how could I say that? Well, you know, uh, letting go of of the scarcity of time because that's Mm. only the individual's standpoint. And and if if one recognizes a sort of uh, inherent, as we were discussing earlier, interconnection, you know, with society, and now we'd be talking then about nature itself and the world and what have you, you know, um, then maybe you could also let go in that way, right? Um, so it's a, yeah. it's an interesting it's an interesting question, and I don't uh, you know I don't propose that I have a solution, but um, but it's 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 a, you know there's there's a sort of two stances to to what you're right. there. And I, I think uh, we need to meditate upon it to get to the bottom of it. Well, I think that's what the mystics tell us, right? That if you hit upon a paradox, you're on the right track. You know, you're getting close. Yes. Um, so I think that's a great that's a great point. Okay. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Gustav was really wonderful to speak with, and I cannot recommend his essays enough. Uh, He's a great writer. If anything resonated with you here, you can get in touch with me either through the Musing Mind website, there's a a contact form on there, or directly on Twitter. Um, I am trying to make the show more visible to people who are interested in these kinds of questions and things. So if you have any ideas as to how I might get the podcast out there into the digital ether, in the relevant networks, reach out. I'd be happy to hear your ideas. All right. Thanks, everyone. And I'll talk to you next time.